Now, this, this joint does not have room service. It does not have any booze in the fridge. So I'm going to just, the, the big question is, will I get a drink before recording is done? Because God, do I want one. But will I get one? That's going to be the big question. Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we are going to continue with our series on problematic faves, our series that currently consists of one episode, but now it will be two. (laughs) So now it is a series. Now it is officially a series. And we're going to be talking about the problematic fave, Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, yes, we are. Okay, I am excited to get to this movie because it is one of my faves from way back, from my childhood. Uh, But before we get to that, we have so much catching up to do because we really haven't recorded in like two weeks. Or it's been it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we should check in. Maya, how the heck are you doing? What are you drinking, if anything? Well, I am currently in a hotel room on Shelter Island in San Diego. There is no room service and there is no booze in the mini fridge. So until my husband brings me a drink, I'm not drinking anything. This pains <laughs> but he, I will, so that's So guys, that's the question of the episode. Right. Will I get a drink that is during the, the recording? Of, that's the mystery <laughs> that will unfold. Certainly, I would like one. <laughs> is he actually, has he left the hotel room in? No, he's, he's working. He's sitting facing me right now. He's listening to me say this right now. He's not even making eye contact with me. It's like, it's like he doesn't even hear me. So this, <laughs> if I'm a betting woman... I'm saying I don't think it seems super likely that this drink is going to happen. I don't know. I don't know, guys. Um, So uh, I am good. I finished shooting my film and I'm editing it now and I'm realizing, gosh, it's so much easier to edit a film when you have all the fucking footage. Like I was editing what I had, which was half of it, and then just filling it with title cards being like, oh, this goes yeah. here. Here's what will go here, yeah. And we did so many homage shots. I really think you would have been proud. We did an Evil Dead homage shot. We did an opening of eight and a half homage shot. We really put in some very beautiful work, uh, And but that was really taking up all of my time. Also, mm-hmm. my children had little graduation ceremonies they have a little graduation ceremony for kindergarten which i think is kind of bullshit it's but kind of everybody bullshit. does it all the I schools know. do it they all do it but obviously it was very cute I'm and sure. uh because my daughter is my daughter when they called her name and she's supposed to you know process mm-hmm. down the aisle she did ballerina spins the whole way down amazing because genetics is powerful and then my son graduated from elementary school and he gave a speech just like his mama <laughs> and it was very cute and now he's going to middle school so that it's been a busy few weeks over here yeah mazel tov thank you so much speaking of graduations i also celebrated some my nieces both graduated one from high school one from college oh my god yeah so i traveled out to san Wait, antonio for that the but, berkeley one yes graduated already uh-huh <laughs> how yeah, how what? is that possible? <laughs> right? Right? She just she just enrolled there. But no, yeah, my niece Marcy just graduated from Cal and oh my her God. younger sister graduated high school and is headed to Penn. Oh and, my God. I know. Mazeltov. Oh yes. my goodness. And they did a joint backyard party c- complete with a bouncy castle obstacle course thing and and a and a dunking thing you know like a you throw the ball and you know dunking pit whatever you call it you know my sister doesn't half-ass shit like that when she throws a party oh i would not imagine for a second that i'm sure their bar mitzvahs were redonkulous out of control like we could we could do a whole episode breaking down their bar mitzvahs all right i'm putting a pin in that i really want to hear about these bar mitzvahs so so that was i mean that's already two weeks ago whatever that was like memorial day weekend 
Um, we really haven't even talked since. It's been a while. I've been watching so much television and movies. And okay. I, it feels like, I really feel like I've accomplished something. Like I've been productive. <laughs> Normally, I mean, this is an ADHD thing and, and a general uh executive dysfunction thing but like I fall into a cycle where I'm like oh, I really don't feel like doing my work I don't want to do my work there's all these reasons I can't do my work but also I can't go and watch tv because I have work to do so right. then I do nothing right right and then you just feel doubly bad because yeah. you both didn't do your work but you also didn't enjoy it at all and then everyone's like have you watched Stranger Things? And I'm like, I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like weird. Which one of our patrons asked, when are we gonna ruin Stranger Things? I'm like, I have to watch it first. Oh my gosh, you haven't watched Stranger Things. Mm -mm. Holy Mm -mm. shit. Because like, I I would gladly do an episode on Stranger Things. I'm not sure if I could ruin it. I mean, whatever, we can ruin anything. We'll come up with something. (laughs) Rebecca, Rebecca. Uh, Should we talk about uh, the response we got on our Discord to our episode about the N-word. No, because if okay. people want to see it, they have to join our Patreon. Oh, damn. Okay. That's fair. Because also, it just made me realize how much I love our patrons and how much I love our listeners and the kind of thoughtfulness that they bring to this so that this show can really happen. And I'm like, yeah. you want to be part of the conversation? You join us. It's two bucks a month. Come on, man. Yeah, that's true. So uh, suffice it to say, the conversation goes on. And if you'd like to be part of that or talking about this episode or anything else or just want to chat with us, Go to patreon.com slash sauce podcast. Members at all levels can join the sauce speakeasy. What, Maya? You, you're gasping. <laughs> no, but or just to come on and tell us about like Redactyl, which is the next oh my God. layer. I'm obsessed with it. Are you obsessed with Redactyl? I find it really hard. I'm not good at it at all, at all, but so, I'm obsessed. By the way, we haven't explained to our listeners what this even is. Redactyl is a game sort of like in the vein of a Wordle type of game where they take a Wikipedia article and they redact all of the words except basically like the prepositions and the word is and are. And um, you guess a word and then if the word appears in the article, it gets filled in wherever it appears in the article. And you can guess as many guesses as you want. When you guess the actual title of the article, the whole thing unredacts and you you see what it is. I've been on a journey with Redactyl, to be quite honest. <laughs> First, our friend Guy, Guy Branham, told me about it. He's like, oh, it's a new thing. And after playing it twice or three times, I was I was texting him like, this is stupid. This is really dumb. <laughs> because in, in my opinion, I was like, there's about 70 to 100 words that if you fill in, you'll know what the article is about. And a lot of them are basic words. <laughs> Can, no, not, all. Uh, be being been <laughs> like you fill them in that which who you know like all of a sudden it's not so hard anymore like oh I kind of see what this is about but then I started playing trying to make as few guesses like okay what if I don't do that my new thing is trying to assess as quickly as possible is it geography is it science yeah is it animal it... vegetable mineral uh, right religious right. Theosophical, yeah, 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 yeah like some cultural thing. Like one right. time, it was a skirt, right? <laughs> that one. Took oh my me a god! <laughs> yesterday, I'm still so mad. I could get it. Yesterday was go, go. All right, I cheated yesterday. I'm going to admit because <laughs> I got that it was a board game, and you can see from the redactyl. Oh. Yeah, I I had board game clearly from the size of the word that was redacted a very short like a two to three letter name for this board game and i had almost the entire first paragraph filled in you know it's like it's a strategy game with two players where the goal of the game is to and and so you just you just copied and pasted into google no 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 although i will admit i've done that in the past (laughs) but this one i was like matt what's a board game that's like two or three letters long and he googled that and was like is it go and to be fair i've never heard of this game in my life apparently it's an incredibly popular game it's an asian game a lot of people there play it i never heard of it so yeah i cheated well i want to thank our patrons for telling me about that <laughs> game because that's how i heard about it on mm-hmm. uh, on the sauce speakeasy and i also want to thank 
finally, patrons, by the way, check your Patreon account because we're not going to thank you unless you answer our questions that we send you when you become a new patron. <laughs> so finally, I mean, he's been a new patron for months now, but I want to thank Patrick. Oh, Pat- Patrick Lewandowski. Yes. Thank you for being a patron. Thank you to all our patrons. And again, we want to thank you by name. So check your Patreon account uh, for your messages there and respond mm-hmm. to us for Pete's sake. Even if you don't want us to say who you are, just let us know. We love to hear from you. We love the human contact. We seek it. We thrive <laughs> on it. We're, we're lonely. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, as I said at the top, this this is part of our Problematic Fave series that we have mm-hmm. been working up to, warming up toward for ages now, like months and months. Don't blame us. Blame Trump. I'm sorry. There's a reason why we kept not getting to it, because there were just dumpster fires happening it's true. multiple times a day. That kind there, of there is a way away. in which there keep being things in the news that we want to talk about. There's also, like, we haven't recorded as often as we could, and yeah. I take a lot of responsibility for that. But here we are. I'm really excited to be doing this. Uh, we asked our listeners, what are your problematic faves? We want to talk about them. And uh, some... I. Th- I thought it was more than one listener yeah, suggested Big two. Trouble in Little China. Which and listeners? it was like right off the top. It was a, a listener, longtime listener, Michael Jaros, and then longtime listener, Dean Madden, who uh, said, and I have to read this. He said, hi, my problematic fave would have to be Big Trouble in Little China. It was kind of progressive in Western media in 1986, having cool Asian characters with agency, satirizing the insertion of white male protagonists in stories about other types of people. But yeah, there's a lot of othering of the Asian characters as being magical. Women are given pretty short shrift. Lots of problems. So do we even need to do this episode? Right. Like he's gonna <laughs> Exactly. Thank you, Dean Madden, and good night, everyone. And Michael. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but um uh I rewatched this movie in preparation for this. And um I went online actually, because I was like, all right, let me see what other people have said about this. And it turns out, as far as bloggers and hot takes on the internet are concerned. This movie is not problematic. They are really? uh-huh. There's a lot of people out there who are ready to tell you that it's really not that problematic. It's actually pretty great and you should get the stick out of your ass. Okay. Okay. I want to add something to this because part of the reason there is a delay on this one is because I started trying to cuz I live in LA and I thought, "Oh, it would be so great if we could get one of the original uh, Asian actors mm-hmm. from this. So I started like looking up the names of all the actors and like writing them and reaching out to them. And then when I would Google search them and anything they said about it, all of them are very careful to say nothing negative about it. So it's not just from the okay. sort of what I'm assuming the white blogosphere. There's this kind of uh, protectiveness. And I don't know if because there's this idea like maybe we'll remake it. Like they're older actors now. Like they don't want to, you know, say anything. They're working actors. Like I don't know what it is, but there's there is a great deal of protectiveness from the actors themselves. Could it be that the actors themselves feel good about the movie and their experience on it. Maybe absolutely. Yeah, maybe they're being protective of a piece of work they're proud of. I look, it's highly possible, but I just think that it's interesting that that thing that you're saying where it's like, this is not problematic. Uh, it's yes. it's coming from different directions. All it's different not just directions. old fans, but people who are in it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about our experience of watching the movie and what we like about it or what why it's a fave generally. Then we can talk about the reasons why it's problematic, which Dean Madden sort of hinted at quite nicely or, or directly stated, but we can get into more detail. And then what I'd love to do is get into the arguments and points that the people I read were making about why it's not problematic, the sort of defenses of it, and tell you why they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right it's a all plan. right i'm cracking my knuckles all right. let's, yeah, do let's, it. Get, let's into get it, it. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit of background 
just in case anyone doesn't know, um, and some of this people might not know, uh, Big Trouble in Little China came out in 1986, directed by John Carpenter, uh. film director extraordinaire, uh. starring Kurt Russell and Kim Cattrall as the white leads. Right. And um, some wonderful Asian actors whose names I don't actually know off the top of my head as the okay, Asian hold leads. On. I'm pulling it up right now. So Dennis Dunn and James Hong, who's like James, oh, James Hong, Hong is like of course. the great classic. Of course. Yeah. Dennis Dunn and James Hong, and some interesting things I learned about this. Number one, the original script was written by a couple of first-time screenwriters, and it took place in, like, the 1880s and was kind of a Western. Yeah, it was a Western with Chinese mysticism. And according to a number of people involved, it was a terrible script. I don't know. I can't speak to it. But um, they hired the director of um, Buckaroo Banzai. The studio that bought the script then hired the director of Buckaroo Banzai to come in and basically rewrite it. He wrote the whole, rewrote the whole thing, set it in modern times, and completely overhauled it. Uh, interestingly, the movie was sort of rushed into production and had a shortened production schedule because they wanted to beat into theaters, a movie from another studio that was coming out with similar themes, The Golden Child, starring Eddie Murphy. Wow, real different movie, though. Real different. Yeah, (laughs) yes and no. (laughs) Right. I just think it's very interesting that 1986 brought us these two sort of comedy action movies about Chinese mysticism. Right. Westerners getting sucked into the world of Chinese mysticism. Right. What was going on there is an interesting question. So just as a a formality, just in case anyone's wondering, spoiler warning, we are going to be getting into plot details of Big Trouble in Little China. Yes. From 1986. All right. So when we're starting about it, I feel like something to always remember about the problematic fave as we're positing it is that we're not saying like, this is great, but we're saying that the things we love about uh, our problematic faves are inextricably tied up in what makes them problematic. They cannot be separated from one another. And we, and we accept that we lift that up, we get into that. Uh, and I think that's especially important given what you're saying about the kind of blogosphere defensiveness um, yeah. is that we have to acknowledge our complicity in our pleasures, which is yeah. very much what this series is about. Yeah, and the ways in which, like you said, the, those pleasures, it's not, I love this thing, but it has these other things. I love this thing despite these problems. They are tied together, and part of the pleasure is the problematic aspects, and that's okay. It's we yeah. all live in this problematic culture. <laughs> yes, we live in this problematic culture, and so and and these things are made for our pleasure. Right. <laughs> so we're not going to get anywhere yeah. if we're. we're in let's be honest about, about it. Let's yeah. Be let's real about that. Let's examine it. So let's start about what is fabulous about it or why we think that our listeners loved it or loved it as kids or like, what is it about this movie that, you know, and by the way, I never watched this movie. I like was, I missed out. I mean, when it was playing on Cinemax 70 times in a month, like I've never saw this movie until I watched it for this just a few months ago. So I want to talk about my childhood love of it. And then I really want to hear your reactions coming to it as a full grown up adult. Yes. So, yes, this movie was like on HBO all day, every day when I was <laughs> a child, right? I, I don't know how I missed it. Oh, my God. I don't know. I mean, were you a latchkey kid? I was. That's yeah. the thing. I saw everything else. No, but I you, don't were know, like, like you were I, like reading books or something. I don't oh, know. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> but I was watching this goddamn movie. I knew it by heart. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think part of it for me is that... I've always liked fantasy and sci-fi and things like that. Like, I also loved the movie Flash Gordon, which was from a few years before this movie, but had some similar elements, which I might want to get into uh, later when we talk about problematic. But um, the, the sort of lore, the fantasy elements of it, 
just hit me right in my spot of like, this oh, is for well, me. I mean, the big set pieces, like yeah. these sort of big, like visually uh, pleasurable set pieces that are that are sort of revolve around the lore for sure. Yeah. And um, some really wonderful special effects that like many of which were sort of cheesy at the time, but they were so fun. Like the floating eyeball thing. Like, I don't know. I love shit like that as a kid. Um, and also it's very funny. Like Kurt Russell's hilarious in it. I loved Kim Cattrall in it. Um, One thing that I noticed, all the leads are kind of dumb. Yeah. And there's something really sweet about that where it's like, they're not like, they're like. Well, the white leads are dumb. The, yes, the, the Asian, white leads yeah, are dumb. The, yeah, of, the Asian yeah. characters are fine, but like the white people, and that's deliberate. Absolutely. There is, yeah, there's this kind of humor of um, Jack Burton, the main character played by Kurt Russell being sort of a buffoon and kind of a goof. And there's some like elements of silliness, but then there's these awesome storm warriors that have these big straw hats and control lightning, like proto Raiden characters that just were like so awesome. So it, it, it had this really unexpected and quite unusual combination of fantasy and special effects and action with humor and silliness it just uh, it didn't take itself seriously that's right which was wonderful it didn't take itself seriously and yet it was committed all the way to what it was doing there's yes. that balance to it that's yeah. so interesting like that's true it there there's something very special about any work that can not take itself seriously and just like have that fun without being self-consciously winky, without yes. apologizing for itself. It's the difference between not taking itself seriously versus apologizing for itself. Being like, we know this is dumb. No, the movie is never saying we know this is dumb. The movie is saying we know this is fun. This is silly yes. and fun and you should love it. And just like, don't take yourself too seriously because this is fucking fun. Totally. Some other things that I think people do love about it. Um, as listener Dean Madden pointed out in his comment, it was kind of progressive in Western media in 1986. It actually was kind of a lot progressive. Uh, there was a huge cast of Asian characters. And Carpenter himself said on like the DVD commentary, very specifically, they wrote it and directed it so that Jack Burton, the the ostensible leading man, was a complete buffoon. Uh, I think, yeah, the the exact quote from Carpenter is, he's a sidekick who thinks he's a leading man. Uh. So you have, a instead of a white hero and an Asian sidekick, you really have an Asian hero with the white sidekick. It's just that the white sidekick thinks he's the leading man. And they they get a lot of humor out of that. And like, you know, like there's a moment in the pivotal climactic scene where Jack Burton shoots his gun in the ceiling and a bunch of rocks or, you know, plaster fall from the ceiling and knock him out. And he's basically out for the climactic fight. Right. I think also one of the things that might have seemed like exciting in the moment and that I actually found even watching it now uh, really interesting is that it's not just that the majority of the cast is is Asian. It's that the world that it's set in yes. is a complete world that is not a white world. Yes. Like it's set in Chinatown in a way that very few things are. And it's there to sort of go like, look at this world and We'll talk about why it's like problematic and exoticizing later, but in terms of the pleasure of it, there is something about feeling like we're being let into a world that we normally cannot get access to. And this world is like beautiful and magical and has all these people yeah. living in it all the time that you don't know about. And there are real people or there are these real characters and Absolutely. this is their world and we're going to take you into all of these different layers of that world and we all have like yeah. there's something about that word like yeah and not not only is it like a fully realized world inhabited by dimensional characters and all of that is true but also it's it's very specifically chinese american in a way that 
you don't often see even to this day. Where it's like they're not going to China, like in the Golden Child or whatever. Right. Um, it's not like Chinese immigrants hearkening. It's like I mean they are immigrants, but it's a mix. The character uh, Wang Chi, he's a he's a Chinese American, like who's like yeah. the real hero of the movie, as it were. Right. He doesn't speak English with some kind of accent that I right. guess uh, Western audiences might expect. Uh, there's a really interesting piece in on the site Women Write About Comics by Joe Fu that argues for the movie and has some interesting points. But I just want to read one little quotation from it. Um, They write, Speakers switch between English, Cantonese, and Mandarin with ease, often leaving Jack out of conversations or rendering explanations to him via choppy translation. It's this weirdly real depiction uh, of right. of a Chinatown that like some people are immigrants from China and are speaking only Mandarin or Cantonese. Some people are Chinese Americans and are speaking mostly English. Uh, some of the characters kind of go in between like the Yoda character. Oh, what's the character's name? Egg Shen. Egg Shen. Egg Shen. Egg Shen. Yeah. Yes. Egg Shen played by Victor Wong. is like, he knows all of this ancient lore but he also like does bus tours for white people through chinatown so he kind of goes in between worlds and again that's that's part of it is saying like there's this there's this whole world it's a whole community you see it in its process of assimilation (laughs) so that's part of it it's like it's like all of the different sort of layers or levels of assimilation where it's like just like the world so often was it's separate it's in this larger white world, but it's real and it has its own strategies, languages, uh, a mode of operating. Yeah. That it's is its own. That is own wholly culture. its own. Yeah. Yes. It's its own culture. It's not Chinese and it's not American. It's Chinese American. It's like That's Chinese right. America. Uh, and it, it's very interesting. I want to get into this maybe in the next segment. I want to talk about a little bit about the history of Chinatowns. Yes. And some of the truths about Chinatown, San Francisco Chinatown, and other Chinatowns that this movie kind of hits at. But um, we'll get to that in a moment. I just want to say one last thing mm-hmm. that uh, I think is a wonderful little tidbit that I recently learned, which is that Taika Waititi, the... Kiwi film director cited Big Trouble in Little China as an influence on Thor Ragnarok, which we both agree is an amazing and perfect movie. (laughs) (laughs) I do not agree that Thor Ragnarok was uh, an amazing and perfect movie, but I absolutely see the connection between those two because there's a kind of um, hearty, enthusiastic goofiness mm-hmm. that animates all of and it. And also this sort of colorful, visually, yes. just like... Yes, visually sumptuous set pieces yeah. that put us in all of these adventures while being totally kind of gonzo and hilarious. Gonzo and is that, a great word for it. It is, yes. I, I, I'm delighted to hear about that connection. That's fantastic. All right, now we're going to ruin it. Okay, so to talk about why this movie is problematic, uh, I want to start with a quotation from Roger Ebert in his review for the Chicago Sun-Times. He was not a huge fan of this movie. And among other things, he wrote that it was, quote, straight out of the era of Charlie Chan and Fu Manchu with no apologies and all of the usual stereotypes. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, as I'm watching this as, you know, a 45-year-old woman in 2022 for the first time, really seeing it for the first time, I mean, yeah. Tell me more about this. Were you, well, shocked? Were you... No, I wasn't shocked because... It felt very 80s in that way. Like, mm. this is what why it, we taught when we talked about 80s sex comedies and, and the way that, um, in so many 80s movies and in that sort of Harvard lampoon era, the way that they treat black characters is like they're cool, so the white guy can be down with it. Like, it's not mm-hmm. like it surprised or shocked me, like, it could have been a lot worse, right? 
For sure. And you know what it also reminded me of, just to get back to some of my weird historical research, is that if you look at like the the way that um you know, you had like the Masons and then you had their side lodges where it's like men would go to be jokey and like the Elks or whatever to mm-hmm. go and they would dress up in costumes. And around the turn of the 20th century, they would dress up in costumes as like ancient Jews because that's what was exotic then. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, So it's clear that like when there is this culture that's coming in and increasing in dominance and feels so other then yeah, like you're going to get excited about all of those things that feel exotic to you. And they went to that 100%. And it didn't make me feel like, oh my God, this is shockingly terrible. It was, it could have been worse, but it was, yeah, it was very much like, like regular Chinese people being like, keepers of magic ways of being they have like <laughs> yeah, this exactly. access to this magic that nobody else has you have this kind of uh this old perverted chinese man who's gonna like fuck all the green-eyed girls until he etc yeah. so so on. it connects to what we like to call orientalism yes which is the figuring of things east asian in a particular way with particular stereotypes. And a lot of those are in action here. Um, You first of all have, yeah, the the ancient mysticism. The idea that the Chinese are a people of mystical magic. They're not, they're exotic. They're exotic and magical. They're not just regular folks going about their lives. No, Um, no. You also have... Um, I'm just imagining like, the Chinese version where it's like, white people, their belief in Jesus allows them to shoot rays right. out of their eyes. <laughs> it's like, it really is like It's that. a good bit. I like that. You have the, the seed of a type five right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, you, you do like, uh, speaking of the sort of Fu Manchu type, the main villain... Played by James Hong, played, played by this like great classic I mean, actor who had been so like so good at this. Oh, he's I so know, good. I know he is. He's also he's also in the Golden Child, of course, because he's like he worked a lot that year. And he's also, no, but like ever since he's been like playing and voicing every reiteration of this character and a lot of them are tributes to this movie yes. or like parodies yes. of this yes. movie and yes. he's like there yes. for it so the villain is called david lopan and he starts as this very old decrepit man but he gets his youth from basically from uh, the uh, uh incipient sexual abuse of yes. a young girl <laughs> and um so there's asian sexuality or like mm-hmm. old Asian male sexuality. Asian male sexuality. And, That's right. And there's definitely an idea of like this sort of perversion, perverted masculinity that yes. he, he's weak and frail. But through abuse of women, he's going to become sort of artificially vital again. And, and it's kind of yeah, um, ungodly. But it also uh, you know, makes him crazy. I mean, it's very yellow yeah, peril yeah. stuff. It's very it's, yellow it's, peril stuff. It is. It actually reminds me of a silent film that I can't think of the name of right now with uh, the Japanese actor where he brands, he literally physically oh, brands wow. the white woman and it's like symbolic of rape. And so there's this very long cinematic history of that form of the yellow peril, this very specific rapey form. And on the other side, so that you have that as one version of Asian male masculinity and sexuality. And then you have Dennis Dunn, who can only be the lead Chinese character because there's such, and he's wonderful, but there's such an innocence about him. Right. And he doesn't get to be, he is a romantic lead and that it's about him, but he's not. He's not like, they didn't find like the hottest actor. Like they found somebody who felt very sexually safe. And that is very much part of the de-masculinization of Asian men and the de-eroticization of Asian men, which is also part and parcel of this. Like we will make them, either there are these like 
pervo, old pervo, like whatever, or they don't have a sexuality. Yeah. And I feel like both of those things are very much in play He is rescuing his like girlfriend, fiance. There is a romance there, but he's not winning her over. It's not like over the course of the movie, she's falling in love with him because of his acts of masculinity. No. And even though Kurt Russell is the sidekick, he has all of that like you know, look at me in my tank top brawn kind of stuff sure. going on. I mean, arg- arguably that's being made fun of, but yeah, it is also present. Yeah. And I want to talk about that in a second, actually. Uh, but I also want to mention a few other sort of tropes yes. of Orientalism um, and just general stereotypes about Asia. Um, you have this whole plot line about trafficking of women. Mm-hmm. That's there. And um, David Lopin, the villain being a, a kind of Fu Manchu type is also reminiscent of Ming the Merciless, the villain in Flash Gordon, one of my favorite movies from my childhood as well. And in both of those movies, there is that plot where he wants to marry, in quotes, the white woman. Mm-hmm. Like both of those movies, the women get dressed up in yes. these fancy clothes, these fancy sort of Orientalist outfits uh to be married off to be we hope not to be to, to be to this villain. yeah so it's not just that they're going to be assaulted there's something about these people that they're going to be ritually assaulted <laughs> like exactly. it, has exactly. it has to happen through this very exotic and that's part of the pleasure right because it's like this very right. visually sumptuous completely invented ritual that then also right. reinscribes their perversion. That's <laughs> part of the stereotype yes. as well. Is like, oh, they're so ritualistic. They have weird rituals. Yes. So all of that, yes, the Chinese are mysterious, they're exotic, they're threatening, dangerous, all of that stuff. It's it's there. Whether you like it or not, it's there in the movie. And there is that, you know, the keeping the secrets from white people. Like that there is this. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that there's this, that there's this secret world. Yes. There's the Chinatown that we see, which is like pagodas and, and dim sum restaurants. And then underneath it, there's this whole other secret world. Yes. Like those people are up to something and they're not telling us about it. And it goes to like age old fears about any immigrant group, but it's especially true. I mean, you can't untie that from things like Japanese internment. Yes. You know, that that, yes. that they keep secrets. Correct. That they are speaking another language we can't understand. Who knows what they're and saying? It's probably bad. Let's, let's make clear right now, in some of the most Asian integrated cities in America since COVID, the rates of assaults on Asian people have skyrocketed. You can't go a day. My husband is Chinese American. And I know you can't go a day without hearing of some elderly Chinese uh, person being assaulted in the streets daily, daily. So, So that kind of mystery and the fears that it triggers in people um, is, it's still very very live, very very live. Yeah, and in places absolutely. like San Francisco, and like right, San Jose, right. Los Angeles, not places where like there there's that Asian over there, places where they they have a whole yeah, world. No. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we can at the very least say that this film is not doing anything <laughs> to dispel people's ideas of of otherness here. Yes. That there is this this group is very other and that they are uh, up to something. Yes. Something secretive. Yes. Uh, This brings me to something uh, I thought was really fascinating that was called to my attention in that piece by Joe Fu in the Women Write About Comics. 99% Invisible did an episode about the history of San Francisco Chinatown and how that influenced Chinatowns across America. So prior to the big earthquake at the turn of the 20th century, Chinatown in San Francisco looked like any other Western part of town. There was nothing visually to distinguish it from any other part of town. But after everything turned to fucking rubble, after the earthquake and the fire, and they went to rebuild, long story short, there was a deliberate, a a very careful, deliberate, and concerted Mm. effort to design what Chinatown was going to look like. 
And what wound up being built was a combination of some uh, Chinese religious uh, motifs and and um, aesthetics and a lot of what white people would expect Chinatown to look like. All those pagodas and the gold Buddhas and all that shit. A lot of that was very deliberate, very consciously Chinatown and the people involved in this redesign and rebuild saying, we're going to get tourists here. Yes. What do we want to present to them? Yes. And it's a conscious self-presentation designed for white consumption. Yes. And so it is actually very real what the movie is depicting because there are two Chinatowns in that sense. There is very much this public white-facing presentation that is self-consciously presenting a idea of Chineseness and Chinatownness that is designed to meet white people's expectations. And then there is a real actual sort of behind the scenes Chinatown where you have recent immigrants, children of immigrants, Chinese Americans speaking Chinese dialects and going about their world in whatever way is authentic to them. It's not necessarily accessible or at least not presented to the greater mainstream white world. Well, that exists and that is real. So that and so the fear is based on the fact that, yes, these people do have a world that has nothing to do with you. It's just that that world isn't full of like dangerous magic that's going to try to right. kidnap your daughters into white slavery or whatever. Well, you there's, know, there's like, very much. I used to, okay, I used to joke. I used to uh, teach a Saturday class in Chinatown in New York to middle schoolers to help prep them for like the English language arts state tests, or whatever. And so I would do a lot of my grocery shopping there. And it was great because you could get all kinds of stuff you can't get at the white grocery store. But also, there would be just like bins full of things that I just don't know what they are. And it occurred to me like for a Chinese person, uh, walking by and seeing all of these different dried uh, herbs or, or roots or whatever, there's like a whole set of signifiers that are right over my head. Like to me, it's like, I, I don't know, it's just mysterious stuff. It's exotic. Um, but it obviously means something to other people. And I always thought that was kind of interesting. But the sort of dark side of that is what we're talking about, where you recognize that there's all these signifiers that you can't penetrate, you, you, you can't read. And there is an, not just an assumption that they're bad, which there is, but there's also this assumption that they're magical. Yes. Like, if yes. I don't understand it, it must, it must be. be arcane. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite gestures of that New York Chinatown one of my favorite restaurants uh, on Lower East Side was Kanji Village. Is Kanji Village. It's on Allen Street. Mm -hmm. It's still there. And what I love is that on their menu, they have a page that is only in Chinese. They all have that. Except, <laughs> except in the middle of that page, they translate one thing just to make you go, don't ask. You don't want to know. Like, it's like, oh, wow. you know, like stuffed pork intestines. And you go, oh, you know what? This right. page is not. For so it's like, we're just going to give That's you really enough of a translation that you don't waste any of our time asking us to asking translate us. this. This is not for you. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I, I can't for the life of me remember who it was, but might have been an article I read where the guy was like a white guy who was like expert in Chinese food and like, you know, had traveled to Asia many times and knew all of the actual dishes that they serve and whatever and tried to order off of that menu. And they were like, that's not for white people. <laughs> <laughs> they, no, we're not going to serve you that. That's, we used to joke that the, the legendary food writer, Jonathan Gold, that there had to be a special word for what happened to a Chinese restaurant in the San Gabriel Valley after he had written a review of it. Because oh. all of a sudden, all these white people are like, thank we're you for like, yeah. they're converging on it. Yeah. It's like it, approving it. it yeah, yeah, exactly. Approving it and then telling them how to how to be there. <laughs> and right, like, right, 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 right. But yeah, there is this this way that, yeah, if I don't understand it, it must be full of occult magic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and I just want to point out that 
in this sort of movie hitting on these truths about there being this this internal Chinatown that is for Chinese and Chinese American people and not for the mainstream of America. And then there's the separate presentation. The movie takes us inside and is very conscious about doing that. And I think is trying very hard. I mean, I mean, Carpenter has said like that he did a lot of edits to the script to take out stuff that could be considered offensive. Like he was very conscious about oh, it. And there is like, speaking of what we're just speaking about, one of the sort of there's like the clueless white lady who's the journalist. You know, there yeah. is exactly that character who's trying to solve the mystery to write about it for the white paper. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. But when we get inside the inner world, the sets are so ridiculously over the top lavish you know, rows of gold Buddhas and crazy neon, neon pagodas and dragons and shit. It's like all of the uh, visual aesthetic that was conjured to meet white expectations of what Chinatown should be are being sort of represented to us in an exaggerated form as being what Chinatown really is. Yeah, yeah, which sets up, which which doubles the Orientalism because it's like, oh, if you only knew, just scratch the surface underneath. It's fucking yeah. fabulous. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> This final section, and I love, I love this, Rebecca, <laughs> that you wanted to do is why the people who say it's not problematic are wrong. <laughs> they are. Because I was reading all these blogs. You know, I did my Google, Big Trouble in Little China problematic. Big Trouble in Little China orientalism. Big Trouble in Little China uh, racist. Like, I'm trying to find anyone who's just going to be like, okay, here's the oriental stereotypes in it. Everything I could find was like, yeah. God, it's issues, but really, it's great. It's great for all these reasons. Even the Reddit, like, there's multiple Reddit threads, and almost everyone's like, it's great. We love it. <laughs> and you know Don't what? Don't take my problematic fave away from me. <laughs> you know, it, it's a fun fucking movie. It's a good movie. And it does do a lot of things really well. Here are some of the arguments that people make. Yes. The first and why one. They're wrong. And why they're okay. wrong. It's satire, right? It's using stereotypes, Orientalist stereotypes, to parody Orientalist stereotypes. Don't you get it? When they get into Lopan's ceremonial marriage rape chamber, whatever, for the climax, <laughs> and it's so crazy over the top with all these visual elements that suggest Chinatown, that's a parody, dummy. So I would like to take issue with that. Yeah. Because essentially what that argument is saying is that it's great to employ racism to satirize racism. Right. And I don't know if I agree with that. And actually, that's something that I think has been a huge conversation throughout the like March for Black Lives, uh, Me Too, like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that's been a very common conversation that a lot of activists and writers and academics have brought up, is that you can't fight stereotype with stereotype. I mean, that's the reason why, why Dave Chappelle said he stopped doing the Chappelle show. It was like, yeah. I'm making this stuff that is funny, but people are laughing at it the wrong for way the wrong and I can't, reasons. for the wrong reasons. And so I can't live with that anymore. That's something that's been a, a very common conversation. I, I probably have mentioned this like 30 times on the show, but um, <laughs> I, I, it sticks with me because I, you know, my comics, I have dabbled in the parody a bit here and there and, and the satire and, um, I've done a lot of thinking about satire and how it works. And I've like frequently enjoyed reading these sort of like gamer gatey, alt-right adjacent people who sometimes would like discover my comic and start tearing it apart because it's feminist. Right, and then right. inevitably there'll be someone like commenting and being like, I think it might be making fun of feminism. Or like they're not sure how to read it. And right. there's like the, 
I forget the number of the rule, but there's there's like an internet rule that anything that's like satire, that there's like a type of satire that's going to be so close to the real thing you can't tell it's satire. But but what I what I come back to, the thing that I always uh, talk about and I've probably talked about before is um, it was an episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast from like 10 years ago where he was talking about satire and cited this study that I don't remember for the life of me who did, but... Uh, they had study participants watch an episode of the Colbert Report. And some of them were conservative people, you know, some of them were self-identified as liberal, Democrats, whatever. And it was an interview. Colbert was interviewing a woman who had written a book about, I, I don't know what, um, environmentalism. And, you know, he was doing his character. So Colbert mm-hmm. was asking her these questions like, you know, why do you hate America? Why do you think we should ruin the American economy? Whatever right, he would ask. Right. Right. And the respondents, who, the, the viewers, the participants in the study who were Democrats were like, it was so funny because he was making fun of Republicans and the way they respond to this stuff. And guess what the Republicans who watched it thought? They were like, yes. He's making yes. fun of Democrats. They're taking his questions at face value. Yeah, haha. Why do you hate America? And that's the double edged sword of satire or yes. the parody, at least. Parody always presents a danger of getting a laugh for the wrong reason. That people like it because they think it's glorifying the thing that it's ostensibly making fun of or supposedly making fun of. So it's very hard for me to accept this argument because you hear it all the time in defense of anything. Anything that's problematic. You get like, oh, uh, the new Grand Theft Auto game is really sexist. This guy's like slapping a woman around and calling her bitch and stuff. And they go, don't you get it? It's parody. <laughs> it's satirizing that. You're like, is it? Right. Is, is right. it? Or is it just permission yes. to go all the way exactly. to where you really want to go? Bingo. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, and even if it is clearly satire, uh, as was the case with um, the whole cancel Colbert thing, to bring up Colbert again, when he was using Chinese stereotypes, relevant to the current conversation, to make fun of the um, uh, Washington football team right. and their mascot. It's like, we get your point, but is it okay to just spend two minutes spewing out these exaggerated right. stereotypes of Asian Americans or Asian people? in service of making a point about how that's wrong to use stereotypes? Like, I don't know. I'm not sure that that's so great. And also, I mean, that's adding, at least with Colbert, it's like he's trying to make a political point, and that's way more sophisticated than this movie is, you know? Like, like that's, you know? No, no, no. I feel like I'm not saying that I I don't, I I agree with what you're saying, but I feel like any, any, uh, Anything that Colbert might have been using as an excuse kind of doesn't, I don't know that it really works here. Like it, it yeah. is like, yeah, it's totally Orientalist. Yeah. And, and it's, and it was a fun party. And, and that's back to the thing where the actors, the Asian actors who were part of it were like, so happy to be part of it. Like, yes. And they, cool. and they say right. to this day, not only that it was great to be part of it, but that, uh, John Carpenter sought their input and right. made it very collaborative. And Asian and Asian American uh, like activist groups, advocacy groups that were very uneasy once they heard about the plot of the movie were invited onto the set. And, right. and all of that is true. And I think there's a lot of consciousness around that. Um, but speaking of that, that yes. brings me to another argument that I want to address. Which is, I was reading an article recently um, that was sort of an interview with Daniel Kwan, the film's marketing coordinator, Mm. who uh, had a lot to say about what I just said, how he and the actors, performers, and other Asians working on the project were very much listened to and were very much made to feel like they were part of the creative process and... um, their input was valued and that it was a collaboration, which is great to hear. But this struck me, just this line, among all the things he said, um, there were protests from 
a few advocacy groups. And he met with protesters from those groups. And he says that they failed to present him with any specifics of what they wanted changed. They had got hold of the script and read it. Right. And they were like, we don't like this. But they couldn't specify what they wanted changed in the script. One spokesperson cited the, quote, overall impression of the movie as the problem and how Kurt Russell's Jack Burton still comes off as the hero at the end, despite Kwan's and the studio's insistence that he's only a, quote, unquote, hero by dumb luck. This gets me to... What I know a lot of people don't want to hear, which is, yes, Jack Burton is a buffoon and a bumbling idiot, really. He is doing this kind of almost John Wayne impression Kurt Russell is, and it's funny Mm -hmm. and it's, it's great. And watching it as an adult, I can absolutely see what they're doing. I'm like, yeah, he's out of his element he's out of his depth he thinks because he's the white guy that he's the hero it's trying to subvert the white savior trope and in fact he doesn't save anybody he has no clue what he's doing he's actually the butt of the joke this is true when i watched it as a kid which was often and enthusiastically that was not the impression that i had of the movie but that's right it was not the recollection I had of the movie. I knew that he was comical and silly, but I just thought of it as he was a slightly over-the-top version of every other male action hero I'd ever seen, and that the reason he had no clue what was going on is because Chinese culture is so weird and mysterious right. and bizarre and secretive. Right. Who could know well, what was going on? Because because... He is still the stand-in for the white viewer. Yeah. He is still the stand-in for the non-Asian viewer. Exactly. And so if you still give the non-Asian viewer, the white viewer, someone to identify with, they are not going to go all the way as viewers into identifying and that's something there when you were talking, I just realized like, oh, because I was thinking about Shang-Chi. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about uh how it is in films where the way that a camera looks at a, a woman's body when it's a male director versus the way a camera looks at a woman's body when it's a female director. Mm-hmm. And like that maybe the really super well-meaning white version of Chinese life is a stage in the process of getting to Shang-Chi. But you don't want that to be where you land. Like you don't like asking for people's input and asking for the actor's input when the script is already determined. It's not the same as having an Asian person write the script. It's not the same as having an Asian person direct the movie. Direct the film. Absolutely. and, and And Jack Burton is there so that we don't have to be in this other world. So it's not like watching a Bruce Lee movie, right? Because in a Bruce Lee movie, he is the fucking sexy bomb-ass hero. And if he's in that world, there's nobody else for you to hang your hat on and identify with. You have to be there. And it's different. Uh, Absolutely. I think that's really well noted. And uh, as much as he is parodying this idea of the sort of like cowboy male, white male hero, um, as much as he is not in any real way the hero of the movie, he is the protagonist of the movie. Yeah. And and you are seeing it through his eyes. So ultimately, no matter how you shake it, for a lot of people watching it, even if he's a fool, we're still like, gosh, we're such fools. But anyway, Chinatown's weird. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but then what about this last thing uh, of the people, you know, who are defending it, which is, well, Asian and Chinese people love it. Well, this is true. A lot of Chinese people love this movie and more power to them. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but they have to face reality (laughs) of what they are loving. Well, my response to this is that we we must, first of all, differentiate between, you know, what gives us pleasure and what is, like, I I love many things, 
that don't depict women that great. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. still love them because they have many yeah. great qualities. And like, yeah. I definitely appreciate, like, I don't want to play down the extent to which this movie created careers for yes. a number of Asian right. actors and, and people like um, da- Daniel Kwan, the marketing coordinator. Like, yeah. That's fantastic. Th- this movie did a lot of cool things in, um, presenting an action movie that takes place almost entirely in Chinatown and is all about Chinese mysticism. But I think in all of these defenses, one thread that I noticed is that people fail to distinguish between a movie that's problematic because it has a negative portrayal of a group of people versus a movie that's problematic because it simply engages in othering or a certain kind of stereotyping that may not be explicitly overtly negative like a lot of the defenses here are like well the asian lead is really the hero the sort of sidekicky character wang chi is actually the hero of the movie and he's great and he's competent while the white guy's a buffoon it's actually great the white people have no idea what they're doing and the Asian people have all the agency and are doing all the cool stuff. And, like, that's all true. And that's great. In that way, the film is not problematic. <laughs> but there are other ways that things can be problematic. That a, right. a problematic or racist portrayal or whatever terminology you want to use doesn't have to mean, like, all the Asian people are gangsters and villains. Or um, right. whatever. Right. There are still other things going on in the culture that we've talked about in mainstream American culture right. in terms of the perception and ideas around China and Chinese people that uh, are not just stereotypes, which are bad because they're stereotypes and they cause you to judge people, but that actually ultimately lead to, like you were talking about the very real world consequences of people thinking that Chinese people are secretive and are part of a secret underground world that is inaccessible to white people and is up to nefarious no good. Nefarious no good that ultimately is, you know, again, white womanhood in peril, etc. It's always that, Um, right? There's also, I mean... I, I'm sure I've mentioned this. I did this piece a million years ago called Nostalgia de la Boue, which means nostalgia for the mud, where I did pictures of myself as like the exotic syphilitic Jewess, <laughs> you know, like that was because that yeah. was a thing, like in the same way that that yeah. uh, that, Asia, that Chinese people were exoticized in Europe. Jews were exoticized in that same way as these kind of sexually perverse. And that's I mean, actually, it was just the same. It was exactly the same. a really interesting comparison because if you think about the history of Jews in Europe, you're talking about a people who had been part of European society from time immemorial, but had literally been put in ghettos, had, had been yes. put into, like, yes. had been segregated from mainstream society, yes. and yes. then thought of as exotic who are those strange yes. people keeping to themselves keeping their own world when they had been forced to do that and then when they try to integrate and come to the cities and make money oh that's a real big problem right, right. but what i found really interesting because you know so it was like nostalgia for the mud nostalgia for a time when i who am now just like basic, you know, white lady was this sort of figure of exotic (laughs) occult mystery. Um, And and I was looking at a lot of Asian stuff at the time because my husband's Chinese American and both Jews and Chinese, not just in Europe, in America's immigrants were associated with rats. Oh, yeah. Like there were Chinese people on packages of rat poison. Oh, oh, yeah. This no. was a real thing. And so so you I mean like, you know that, I think that Okay, it, do you do you know the the urban legend of the Mexican rat? It's I I learned it in Dundee's folklore class. So, um the the classic story, the urban legend is my friend, my friend's friend, my 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 cousin's friend went to Mexico and found this little stray dog and brought it back with her and and it was a rat. Took it to the vet, blah blah blah. It was a rat. It was a giant yeah. rat. But at that time, which was the 90s, the story was being repurposed and retold as it was found swimming in the bay. 
in the San Francisco oh, Bay. It was a Chinese rat. There you go. There you go. But it's like, but Mexican, I mean, Chinese, Jewish, like that is associating immigrant groups with rats. It's like as it's old as whatever. Thing. Yeah. And so, and I feel like there's that part where again, um, I'm not taking anybody's pleasure away from the movie, but I feel like, um, again, in terms of the evolution, that this is a stage along the way. I feel like a stage along the way for all uh, immigrants or people assimilating in America is the shitty movie that at least you finally see yourself in. Right, right. You know, yeah. like it's a stage. It's a, but it shouldn't. It's not no, the end. But it's not. The and end. what's does it shouldn't be the end? And I feel like the most problematic thing about Big Trouble in Little China is that there was that one movie, and then a movie like Shang Chi comes out like forty years later. Yeah, like that's what's problematic. Like that should have been the beginning of the evolution. So that we we wouldn't land there, but if that's still sort of held up as this beacon because we don't have enough Asian American adventure movies between now and then, that's what makes it problematic. Oh, that was awesome! I think so too, and I just love Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what it is. That eye makeup. It's the eye makeup. The eye, when she's dressed. I, I mean, oh my it's god! Really the, sexy and like neon. I mean, look. It was. They literally use neon in the set, like neon lights. How can you not love that? I, uh, but I totally. the, the the floating eye creature. I don't know. These are images that are like seared into my mind of from course, my childhood. Of course. So guys. I think that you have problematic faves that maybe you haven't shared with us, or maybe you want to remind us of the ones that you suggested because we love this shit. We can ruin the shit you love all day. And quick side note, reminders help because I have problems with executive functioning and that includes working memory. So throw us a reminder or tell us about what you haven't told us. What is your problematic fave? We want to make more of these episodes. And we won't, you know, let politics or things like the, you know, January 6th committee hearings <laughs> get in the way of it. Although we have to talk about okay. that next week. We have we'll, to. We'll, I'm insisting. Okay. I'm insisting. Well, then I'm going to have to watch them, I guess. <sighs> All right. Listeners. <laughs> Please reach out to us. The best way to do this would be to go to patreon.com slash podcast. And if you join our Patreon at any level, you can come onto the Sauce Speakeasy, our little Discord channel chat thingy, and you can share with us whatever the fuck you want. Also, there are other options. You can email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on the social media platforms as at saucepodcast. If you want to find me, you can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere you're looking for Maya Garances. And I am at Gynostar on all the various platforms. All right, my friends, we will talk to you soon. Adios, amibas. <laughs>